My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church, and I get to facilitate the teaching team, which is an incredible responsibility and joy with that. I wish every week I say this, I wish everybody could be part of that table at Onyx where we talk about the message coming together. And I was remembering this week, you know, as a young boy, I would usually spend a week or two traveling up to, or from Austin up to Hope, Arkansas, where my grandparents lived, Big Mama and Big Poppy, is what I called my grandparents. And I loved spending time up there because it was just me and them. You know how that is when you're a grandkid and you get your grandparents all to yourself. And so I would go up there and, and we would make the rounds. I would make the, the rounds with Big Poppy. We would start off, we would drive downtown Hope, Arkansas, just a few miles away, and we'd start off at the newsstand. This is back, literally, it was like Mayberry. I mean, they still had a newsstand. And I'd get a comic book, and he'd get a copy of the Bowie County Blade or the Hope Star, the local newspapers, and then we'd head over to the Citizens National Bank community room, and we would sit down, and he'd get a cup of coffee and catch up on all the local gossip from all the cronies. And then after that, we'd head over to Judge Garrett's office, and Judge Garrett, uh, what I remember about him is he was this jovial, bald-headed man who always had candy on his desk. And he treated me with the appropriate affection that was due uh, a beloved grandchild of one of his best friends, my grandfather. And I just always thought of Judge Garrett as this incredibly likable, affable man, you know, in his overalls, and we would talk about fishing, and he would tell us where the, where the brim were biting, before we made our last stop over at Coops, where we would buy crickets to go brim fishing with our cane poles. And if it sounds idyllic, it, it really was, in many ways, from my perspective. What I knew about my grandfather, what I knew then about my grandfather, what I knew then about Judge Garrett, was these men were incredibly kind, paid incredibly close attention to me, showed me honor that no eight-year-old should ever have. But as I grew older, I learned there was a different side. See, Judge Garrett was kind of a mover and a shaker in Bowie County, Arkansas, Hempstead County, Arkansas. And he got things done. And he was known as fair, but he was also fierce. And I dare say that many of the adults that walked into his office on that same day didn't get the same greeting that I got as an eight-year-old grandson of Leo Ray, but they got a different greeting altogether. Same person, same man, different experience of his character. This morning, we're going to look at a text that I was telling the, as we prayed here earlier. Um, they're hard for me to teach. They're text with warning. They're stories that are somber. There's no way to sugarcoat them. And oftentimes, if we had our druthers, since I'm speaking of Hope, Arkansas, I can use a term like that. If I had my druthers, I'd skip over them. But we can't do that. And if we do, we do it at our peril. So let's look in and see this side of Jesus this morning that many of us may be uncomfortable with. Jesus, we welcome you into this place Holy Spirit, we know you're here. 
And I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to love, a mind to comprehend, a will to obey. Jesus, we want to know you, not just as a child knows her father, but also as an adult. We want to grow up in our apprenticeship of you. So Jesus, grant us this morning, I pray, repentance, willingness to examine ourselves, and to follow you wherever you lead us and whatever you tell us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. So we're coming to this text in the Luke narrative as we march towards Jerusalem. As a reminder, Jesus has turned his face towards Jerusalem. He's going, and he's got this band of Galileans that he's going with. Many of his disciples were from Galilee. Most of his followers were probably from Galilee at this point. And they're heading towards Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, these other people come up, these other Galileans come up, and they've got this, they've got this news, this very unsettling news, and they're going to offer it to Jesus as a warning. And this is what they say. He said, now there were some present on that occasion who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think these Galileans are worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will perish as well. Or those 18 who were killed when the tower in Siloam fell on them, Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will perish as well. Now let's set this up. Again, they're walking towards Jerusalem. There's two warnings that we're going to see here for Jesus, and then one warning that he gives for his followers, for us. Jesus is about to walk into Jerusalem. He's got a band of Galileans with him. The other Galileans who encounter him on the road say, basically they're saying, do you really want to go there? Do you know what happened to the last band of Galileans who were perceived as a threat to Pilate, who were perceived as a threat to the order? You know what happened to them? While they were offering, giving their offering in the temple, Pilate sent his men in and slaughtered them. That's what it means that their blood was mixed in the temple. Pilate was exacting revenge, probably against, as a sign to Herod, that he had overstepped his bounds when he had had John the Baptist executed. We don't know for sure, but it seems likely. And so this was a warning to Jesus. Are you sure you want to go to Jerusalem? They think they're, they think they're doing good. They think they're, they're, they're going to get Jesus out of a trap. Jesus turns this whole thing around because it seems a very incongruent response, Right? I mean, you go up to offer help to somebody, say, hey, have you considered this? This might help. This might, you know, this might get you out of trouble. And then that person responds and says, really? You, you think that's what I'm worried about? Let me tell you, you need to be the one who's worried here, not me. That's a sobering moment when that happens, right? When we go and we think we're we're, hey, we're going to manage this situation for our, your safety, our safety, and then the rebuke is, 
No, 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 no. You need to be looking out for you. You're the one who's in danger here, not me. Now, it's easy to read this text in isolation and think that this enforces a narrative that is common in our culture. Bad things happen to bad people. Good people avoid those bad things, right? But listen to what he says. He says, you will likewise perish. The context here is Galileans who were going to make trouble, who were going, maybe in the name of God, maybe in the name of their religious observance, were confronting Herod, or Pilate, were confronting the authorities. Jesus is making a clear warning here against the ways of violent revolt, against taking up the sword, against making political intrigue as a way to a spiritual end. It's a warning we all need to hear. It's also the warning that oftentimes when we get caught up in the affairs of other people, we start trying to figure out why that thing happened to that person and that thing happened to that bad thing happened to that person over there, we lose sight of where we are, of what we need to be paying attention to. It's so easy for us, isn't it? to observe the catastrophe that comes on someone else and think that somehow they did something to deserve that. Somehow we can avoid a fate by our own morality with that. Jesus will have none of it. He is always calling us back to where do we stand before God. What is it that we're responsible for in that meaning? And he doesn't just throw this out as a blanket kind of generalized warning like, hey, when you, when you get ready, let's do this. Now he goes on and he gives this very specific parable. And you see, and he gives this because we have this tendency to think of Jesus one or two ways. We have a tendency to kind of think of him Santa Claus Jesus, right? Santa Claus... Jesus, kind of generally affable, there to meet our needs, there to make us happy, but otherwise not really to pay attention to too much. Then we go to the other side and we think of just this angry fist of God ready to punish us, ready to pummel us, pummel us, ready to exact vengeance on our slightest misstep. We have to be careful to reject both of these images. Neither one is accurate with that. In fact, he goes on to tell this story that demonstrates that. He says, Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard, and as he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the worker who tended the vineyard, For three years now I've come looking for fruit on this tree, and each time I inspect it I find none. Cut it down. Why should it continue to deplete the soil? But the worker, worker answered him, Sir, leave it alone this year too until I dig around it and put fertilizer on it. Then if it bears fruit next year, very well. But if not, you can cut it down. Now we know the fig tree, metaphorically, usually stands for Israel in this, but it can also stand for the church. And as you read the commentaries on this, you will get a wide variety of applications 
Sometimes the landowner is Jesus, other times the worker in the field is Jesus. There's all kinds of ways you can apply this, and honestly, they're all good. There's, there's value to be found in each one of those. But here's the thing that is in common to all of them. And here's the reason why I believe it immediately follows this warning. Y'all, the time is now to repent. You see, Jesus makes very clear that this tree has not borne fruit for a long time. Longer than it should be allowed even to remain in the ground. And if we have not encountered catastrophe, if we have not encountered rebuke, if we have not encountered judgment, that is not necessarily because we're just doing it right. But that is mostly, primarily, due to the mercy of God. You see, when we think about repentance, when we think about getting our life right, when we think about taking stock in the things that we need to do to be more into our obedience of Jesus, to follow more closely, to be more closely apprenticed to Jesus, it is so easy to procrastinate, isn't it? It's so easy. It's so easy to say, yeah, man, I I believe it. I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to do it as soon as this semester's over. Because you know finals and stuff. Yeah, I'm going to get my life together as soon as I get that next promotion because oh, then I'll have a little breathing room. You know, well, man, I'm serious about it. I believe it, but with the kids the age they are and they're always running around and I've got so much going on, you know, I, I'll get to it then. Y'all... The warning is clear here. We are already on borrowed time. Or better, we are on God's mercy. So he puts along with this warning a very somber reminder that the time to repent has already passed. We are living into God's mercy now. We should no longer put this off. The time is now with that. Now we skip down a few verses and we see Jesus is warned again. The first time he was warned about Pilate and what was happening with that when he was going to what would possibly happen when he encountered Pilate in Jerusalem. And now he's warned that if he stays here, he's in trouble. And you think about the two together. He's like, don't go there, you're in trouble. And then another group comes up and says, well, don't stay here, you're in trouble. I mean, he's caught between a rock and a hard place with this. It says, at that time, some Pharisees came up and said to Jesus, get away from here because Herod wants to kill you. But he said to them, go and tell that fox, look, I am casting out demons and performing healing. It's interesting here. Remember what what he said to John? Remember when Andrew preached back and and John sent him and said, are you the one I should look for or should I look for someone else? And he he replies, tell tell John this. He kind of says the same thing. Tell Herod the same thing. 
Go tell that fox, look, I am casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow and on the third day I will complete my work. And then he says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the next day because it is impossible that a prophet should be killed outside of Jerusalem. We get an indication here, Jesus is very, the, the, the progression of events is very clear in his mind as he knows what's coming. Listen, he's walking into this wide-eyed. He knows what's coming. At the same time, the emotion of it overwhelms him. There are many people that would argue for an immutable God, a God who is beyond emotion, a God who cannot understand, who cannot feel what we feel. There could be nothing further from the truth. A good part of that evidence is right here where he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you would have none of it. So if we have a message of repentance, and then we have a timeline of repentance, we also have a motivation for repentance here. Yeah, listen, we need to be concerned. A sober assessment of our state always takes into account the consequences of disbelief, of disobedience. Judgment, if at all possible, should be avoided. But if we're doing it just to escape punishment, if we're doing it merely so that it is so that we avoid the inconvenience or the consequences or the pain. It will never be true repentance. Because all true repentance has to be rented, has to be rooted in the knowledge of God's love for us. So in this final little segment, we see the heart of God who is longing to gather us to himself. As a chick gathers, or as a hen gathers her chicks, as a mother gathers a child to her breast, as a grandfather gathers his grandchildren around him, as a dad, my favorite thing, my absolute favorite thing. If I if I look back over my whole life and you say, what are the what's the most fantastic things you've done? What are the most beautiful places you've been? What are the most incredible experiences you've had? At the top of my list would be have one of my daughters fall asleep on my chest. To, to hear their breath, to feel their heartbeat as my chest rose, to hear their breathing. That, that's the image we have here of, of God's love for us, of God's desire for us. And ultimately, that's what leads us to repentance. Are consequences there if we, if we disobey? Yes, they are. They're there. But that's, that's not why we should do it. If we need the reminder, then great. You're reminded. If we need the warning, you're warned. But if we need the motivation, look at this. Look at a God who longs to gather us to himself. 
And he ends by saying, look, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, which we, will, we ourselves will shout on Palm Sunday before the crucifixion. Now listen, make no mistake, we are in a culture that cuts deals every day. We manage and finagle, we maneuver and position, we posture and pose, we preen between those two extremes. One of compromising with power so that we can hold on to our power and the illusion of control. Or two, of embracing self-righteousness. We're going to be the resistance. We're going to be the ones who are going to stand up. We're going to be the ones who bring down the government or bring down the oppression or whatever. And the kingdom of God is neither of those things. The kingdom of God is the one that sets the path for faithfulness that neither aids and abets persecution, injustice, systemic violence, but in the same way does not appropriate those same tools in its resistance. It does not fight swords with swords. It does not bomb bombs with bombs. But it fights a very different way. And we have to understand also with this, as we walk into it, that this story, and I, and I know it's so hard. Look, look, we all read the Bible like a yearbook, right? I mean, Tilly, what's the first thing you do when you get your yearbook, right? You flip to the back, right? You look in the index. You're like, where am I? Where does it say Tilly LaForge? And then you flip to the page and you look at your deal. I mean, that's what we do. That's how we read the Bible. We're like, where am I? How does this apply to me? Where do I find myself in the story? Y'all, just, if we can, just consciously take that, take that and lay it aside this week as you sit with this text. And let Jesus be the hero. What does this tell us about Jesus? What does this tell us about what he's concerned about? What does this tell us about his character? What does this tell us about his resolve? What does this tell us about how he goes about things? Because when we see that, when we see Jesus, when we truly see Jesus, then we will start to find that true motivation to let down our defenses, to quit our rationalizing, to still the busyness and the excuses and repent, literally turn ourselves towards Him. And all that should lead us to a, a letting go a letting go of both our anger against and our complicity with. A letting go of the desires of the flesh and saying no to the demands of our culture. Last week, as our Lent practice, we talked about counting our blessings, which seems kind of counterintuitive, right? You start Lent, the season of giving up things, by 
paying attention to what you have. But that's just another way of seeing that everything that we have is a gift. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve any of it. There's nothing that I've done to deserve what I have, what I've experienced, the goodness and mercy. I don't deserve a bit of it. It's all a gift. And when I, when I truly understand that, then I understand, you know what, if I didn't, if it's not mine by right, then I can let it go. I can trust the one who gave it. If the one who gave it takes it away, well then, that's what's best with this. So that's what we do. We let it go with this. But this letting go comes with repentance. It comes with gratitude, which we practiced last week for what we have, what we have, and then this week with repentance for how we've missed the mark, for the compromises that we made, for the way we've fought fire with fire in our daily lives, in our culture. And so I'm going to lead us through a litany of repentance. Now, for those of you that didn't grow up in a liturgical church like me, this kind of stuff can be weird. You can seem that. So I'm just asking you for your forbearance as we go through it. But we're going to stand up. I'm going to read... And then the italicized words, if you'll bring that first one up. So you see where it says, forgive us? So that's where we're all going to say that together. So I'm going to read the top part, and then all of us together are going to say the words that are in italics. So if you stand with me, please. And you know, if you need to, sometimes I do this, I practice where you take your hands and and you cleanse them up, and you think about all those things you're holding on to, and then as we pray, just stand with open hands with that. Abba, Father, we have acted with ignorance, violence, selfishness, and sloth. Forgive us. All our excuses are smoke and suds. They evaporate in your presence. Forgive us. We have sinned by what we have chosen to do and what we have chosen to ignore, to rationalize away, to blame on others. Forgive us. We don't deserve your forgiveness, much less your love. Your mercy and your welcome is all grace, a sign and experience of your great love for us. Thank you that you accept us and embrace us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might no longer be us who live, but Christ in us. Fill us, Abba, with your Holy Spirit. All for your glory, our salvation, and as a light to the world. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to invite the worship team up. I was sharing with the worship team earlier. I got news last night that the pastor of the church that I grew up in passed away. Dr. Ralph Smith was the pastor of, Univers or of a Hyde Park Baptist Church in Austin, Texas for a couple generations. I grew up with his son, Peyton. Peyton was my age. and Dr. Smith was this 
constant figure in my life growing up. An incredible preacher, well respected in the community, author of a number of books, one of the pioneers of broadcasting church live, um, really an institution there in Austin. My entire youth, he was the pastor. All through my teenage years after I left for college, he was the pastor there. Been to his house on a number of occasions. And as I was reading the obituary and reading the memorials, I realized I could not recall a single sermon that he preached. I couldn't quote, I couldn't give you a quote, I couldn't give you a, you know, something that he said one time that always stuck in my mind. Cannot remember a thing. But I remember him. I remember him clearly. I remember his hands. I remember how he stood. I remember how, probably, I'm probably imitating him now and I don't even know it. I remember everything about him. I remember sharing meals with him after church. I remember going to his house. I remember all these things. I cannot remember anything he said. You know what? That's okay. And I think maybe that's why we come to this table every week. Look, Lou, you may not ever remember a thing I say. And that's okay. But I want you to know Jesus. I want you to remember coming to the table. I want you to know him. I want you to know his hands. I want you to know his voice. I want you to know his character. I want you to know who Jesus is. And I think this table is that reminder. The person of Jesus. Not a disembodied idea. Not a philosophy but a person. So as we come with repentant hearts today to this table, encounter the person of Jesus in the broken bread for you, in the poured out blood for you, as a sign of his love and mercy and forgiveness. And thank you for being here this morning.